hope you have a Bible, and if you do, would love for you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read from that text before we get started today. Uh, I want to say it's good to have Stephanie back with us. We missed you and her, your family. Uh, glad to have her um, part of our worship team, does such a great job leading um, our uh, working together with our team on our music. Uh, Jason, I believe you're going to be taking a little trip here with uh, Mike and Dana. Um, I heard rumors that he's going to cross the border, so um, um, uh, on a very important re- for very important reasons. So pray for, pray for them. Uh, we hope you all have a good time. Uh, but we are thankful for uh, Steph and, and uh, Jason and Ann uh, and Lindsay. Uh, each and every week, we uh, appreciate and are so fortunate uh, to be led to God in worship uh, and, and again, singing songs that really zoom in on how good he is, how good God is, and, and how blessed we are to be his people. Um, again, First Peter chapter 1, uh, we're going to read verse 1 and skip down to verse 13. Uh, you'll, you'll see the, the narrative thread as we uh, read from verse 13 down to verse number 19, but I want to listen to how Peter acknowledges us or addresses us, uh, introduces his text. And then we'll drop down in verse 13 and we'll see that he has a very important command for us, a very important admonition for us. So 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, To the pilgrims of the dispersion uh, to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, graced Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now on the lines of obedience, he's gonna have a, he has a commandment for us, but again, he, he holds over that and he couches all of that in the blood of Jesus that has given us this opportunity. Verse 13, therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts or passions as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. For if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay or your exile here in fear." Knowing that you are not redeemed with the corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. We got a really incredible text to to dive into and unpack, Uh, but I want to kind of set the stage for us uh, before we do that. I think everybody at some point have, has found themselves uh, staying at or living somewhere that isn't your place. Uh, and maybe you're, you were living there, maybe you are living there, or you were living there in, in the past for a, for you understood that it was going to be a short period of time. Maybe it became a longer period, but it was meant to be from the very beginning, a temporary stay. Now, whether you're renting or you found a spare bedroom and hoping nobody would notice that you're staying there, right? Maybe at a family's home. Um, Everyone has uh, a living with someone experience or a living at some place experience. And and I kind of leave that blank there because I think all of us kind of have that colloquial or that that kind of way of saying that, you know, when we refer to the place that we're living at, if if it's not ours, right, we kind of refer to it, oh, I'm staying with so-and-so or I'm living 
living at so and so's place, and even if you're renting somewhere, you kind of refer to it as to, to, you know as the the place to, to, uh, under the ownership of whoever, right, owns it, right? Um, and I think all of us have that experience. And, and, and when we, the reason why we don't refer to it as ours is, is because it's not, right? But it's somewhere that's not quite home. And, I, and again, not that that's a bad thing and not that it's, you know, anything wrong or anything less than to, to live somewhere that's not yours. But you know the difference between home and somewhere that's not home. Now, uh, I think that, that maybe uh, this is something that I've done, but, or I do, but I've heard enough people through the years that I think it's just kind of our local way of talking about the places uh, between homes or the places uh, that we have stayed. And again, these were temporary stays, or they were meant to be temporary stays. They were temporary places that we called home, but we didn't have any intention of staying there or making that our home. Now, uh, for, for, you know, up until Lindsay and I got married, I had only ever called one place home. I had lived in, in, in uh, my parents had had a place before I was born, but from, uh, from, my, uh, from birth on forward uh, to my mid-20s, I lived in the same place uh, from, from birth and, until then. And, and I didn't move out for college. I, I didn't, you know, I, I traveled. I, I commuted back and forth. Um, and, and when I first started pastoring, I, I was there, right? And, uh, you know, I know generations passed, you know, you turn 18 and you're, you're out the door, but but uh, if you're if you're a millennial, you know this, and you're part of the generation that comes right after that. Um, you, you know that's just kind of how it works uh, uh, nowadays. Um, but but right after Lindsay and I, I got married, uh, we rented a place for a little while until our house was finished. And, and even though um, the place was far from being in the best shape, uh, and, and really hadn't been updated in a long time, and I don't think anybody had lived there for a good decade, um, when we when we moved in there. Um, and I had never had this feeling before, and maybe when I would go to a hotel for, you know, a short period of time, but that was, again, not really, you know, uh, not really on my mind. Um, but when we moved in there, um, as soon as I got in there, I, I began understanding that there was something in my mind that was telling me, you know what, you, you probably shouldn't slam the door as hard as you maybe did at home, or you, you probably shouldn't drag something across the floor the way you probably would at home. And uh, there was something in me sort of tilted uh, to be more careful um, as soon as I started living there. Um, really before, when we were moving in, there was something in me that, you know, I probably don't need to spill anything, and I, and I need to make sure that there's not any permanent damage done, because I was constantly reminded that I'm only going to be here temporarily, and when my stay is over, no matter how lengthy that might be, um, this is going to go back into the owner's sole possession. And, and I don't want to put it back into his hands uh, in, in a less than, lesser shape than, than what I received it in. Now, when our house was almost done, we moved in back into my parents' house for a couple of months, and I was back to slamming doors and spilling stuff just for fun. Um, but and I'm just kidding. But uh, it was just second nature to feel like um, I was back at home. And you kind of do things that you're more comfortable and you're a little less, uh, a little less careful, right? And I think we all kind of know that balance of there's, there's a carefulness that we conduct ourselves when we're somewhere that isn't ours and somewhere that we maybe don't plan to be for a while. And then there's that laxness that we kind of develop when we're going to be somewhere for a while and it doesn't really matter. Nobody's going to come and look behind us uh, if, if we, uh, you know, spill something or, or something happens that maybe leaves a little damage behind because it's our place and, and we can fix that when we get around to it, but it doesn't really matter because it's, it's our place. And you know, we moved in our home, there was that initial 
you know, I, I should be more careful because it's brand new and, and it's kind of like when you get a new phone or a new device and it has that plastic on it. You're thinking, how long can I make this last? And then a day later, you're like, what, is, what am I doing? Uh, and, and maybe even an hour later, I don't, I don't leave it on there for anything because it's just kind of in the way. Uh, but uh, the, it's like a new car, a new home, the same thing uh, kind of goes. You, you tiptoe around for a little bit, but eventually the new wears off and, and your carefulness kind of, you know, is reduced to, to more laxness and you're not so uptight about everything. Um, um, you know, there's that point with a new car where you spill a few things, and at that point, you know, the dream is dead. You just accept it, right? You, you try to be careful, and you try to keep it clean as and brand new and smelling brand new, but you spill three things, and you're thinking, you know what? It's over. The, the car is just going to be a car now, and it's going to get nasty, and that's just kind of how it goes. And if that makes your skin crawl, I'm sorry. That's just kind of how my attitude. I try for a few months, and then eventually it's, you know what? I don't have time to, to, to be so worried about this. Um, but now, we, we took really good care of our home, and, and as we begin to discuss selling our home, um, that same mentality that we had when we were renting kicked in uh, because you could see down the road to a not-so-distant future uh, where you knew the house was going to be in somebody else's hands, and, and you knew that there may be repercussions if you don't leave it um, in the best shape possible, and it may cost you in some, some way, shape, or form. So even though there may be no external pressure on you, there's something that kind of falls on your shoulders when you're in any capacity somewhere for a temporary period of time. Now, after we sold our home, we lived with my grandmother for just under a year. And, and, and again, being family, you know, we, we were familiar with it already. I was familiar with it already. So it kind of felt like home, but there was still that same instinct to show extra respect, to be extra careful uh, because it wasn't ours. And we knew that we wouldn't be there forever. We wanted to make sure, and you probably have been there too, you want to make sure that uh, you conduct your temporary stay in a graceful respectful way. Because whether you're renting or planning for a place to be someone else's sometime soon, there's this sort of self-evident rule or this self-evident mentality that you may have a rightful stake in the place, but your departure is in sight. If you can see down the road that there's going to be a future where you're not there anymore, that there's sort of this unwritten rule, this self-evident you know, idea that there's lingering over you is this reminder that I'm not going to be here forever. So I probably should be careful with what I leave behind, how I leave things behind. And again, maybe, maybe that hasn't ever happened to you, but I've been there. It kind of leaves a weight on your shoulders that I should conduct myself in a way that leaves this place in as good a condition as I can. Now, maybe you conduct yourself in a similar fashion uh, as renting or staying somewhere regarding your car, other large pieces of property that, that you don't intend on having for a long time. Maybe this stuff never crosses your mind, and if it doesn't, God bless you, that, that's great. Um, but then you get a bill from your landlord uh, that uh, something uh, needs to be fixed that, they're, that you're responsible for, uh, or it's kind of like when you were, you know, rented, a, or you were staying at a hotel or a condo, and you get a bill later on, or your credit card is charged later on because they decide that you damage the place and you don't even remember doing it, but apparently you did. Um, so this frame of mind and this attitude was in the earliest of days of the church and Christianity, this became the common frame of mind for how Christians understood their time on earth. That all of us, they believed and, and they taught that all of us are just temporary pilgrims or strangers on this earth. Placed here by God, but in greater preparation for a life to come. 
Jesus himself made this the center point, centerpiece of his teaching, borrowing from an idea that God had instilled in Israel a long time before. When Israel was organized as a nation, it was ingrained in them that they weren't just a nation under God, but they were a nation that belonged to God. They were God's nation, and they were temporary dwelling in a land uh, until God would bring about something greater, something beyond this life in the land they were living in. The rest of the world wasn't concerned about that sort of reality. They weren't concerned about the future. They saw the here and now. They saw um, what was now as the end all be all. And, and Israel was tempted to follow suit. Uh, and, and they wanted leadership that enabled that reality. However, to counter that, God raised a prophet up named Samuel, whose name is a sermon in and of itself. Samuel's name was a reminder that their lives were borrowed from God. Their lives were alone. Our lives are alone from God. And that we came from him, we're going back to him. So we must not and we cannot forget his plans for our life and for this world. We must leverage our lives for God's coming kingdom, not for our falling fading kingdom. That's what Samuel's message was to Israel, and that's really the Bible's message to you and me. Of course, this, re this is the reason, uh, the reason why we're prone to waste and mismanage our lives is because of sin. Sin inclines us to miss out on God and not see what he's doing, to twist and warp what he's given us for our own disposal. So God sent a solution. God sent a savior to change us and to save us from that sinful bent. He sent Jesus to redeem us and direct us back to him. He came on the scene preaching that all of our lives were going to run head on into the coming kingdom of God. And we must be ready because our arrival there is imminent. That you and I, all of us are headed towards the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is headed towards us. And one day, definite, some unknown point in the future, but definite, we are going to come to an end of this life. Jesus began his ministry, and you've all heard this before. He began his ministry with this short sermon. Repent, as in change the way you've been doing things, change the way you've been seeing things. Repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll put that verse up here on the screen. Repent for the kingdom of heaven as in not your kingdom, not Israel's kingdom, not any kingdom of the world that may seem like it's large and in charge, but God's kingdom is at hand, that it's always at, his hand is always at the door and we should live our lives in a way. Repent means to change our mind, to change our viewpoint, to change our outlook, to change how we're living because we believe that God's hand is on the door and one day soon or some distant point in the future, we are going to go from this life to the next. He preached sermon after sermon that made it clear that our time here is temporary. Our possessions and property are temporarily entrusted to us that we might maximize this life for his glory, his gain, and his kingdom's establishment. The early church made it loud and clear that all of us have a return to sender label on our lives, that all of us are creatures made by God, made for God, blessed by God, by his goodness and blessed for his glory. The leader of the early church, especially over the Jewish Christians, was the number one follower of Jesus named Peter. 
Peter frames his entire ministry around this idea that we are here temporarily. We are strangers in a strange land, sent by God, sent for God, and one day we will boomerang back to God. The world that Peter lived in was already unstable. And unless you were a Roman or a wealthy, powerful leader within its provinces, you were well aware that nobody's dwelling was permanent and nobody's possessions were secure. Everyone was an edict away, a conquest away, a change in the emperor's mood away from having your property seized, your home destroyed, and your family uprooted and relocated. The Jews were especially impacted by this level of volatility. Israel had faced scrutiny for years because of the history of its faith and its connections with the world. The Jews had grown accustomed to not digging their heels in too deep wherever they were. And from the moment the church came on the scene, Christians were always a people and already a people under the microscope. And eventually they would be under persecution. In the ancient world, the best way to reach the most amount of people within the shortest amount of time was to write a letter. And there weren't any newspapers, there weren't any live streams, there weren't any televisions. So the church leaders communicated with the the churches that were scattered around the world. Uh, They communicated by letter, producing as many copies as they could. It would send the same letter to different communities. Peter wrote two prominent letters, aptly named 1st and 2nd Peter. And in 1 Peter, he addresses the churches and he really sets a foundation for the churches to operate by and to conduct their lives under. He sets a foundation for the Christians in this letter directed to all the major Christian, community, Christian communities around 60 AD as persecution began to intensify. And in verse 1, we see that he, he addresses uh, churches in several different cities and several different places, but I want to focus on that word that he uses to the pilgrims, to the pilgrims. Now, this word, in your, depending on what Bible translation you're reading, uh, you'll see either sojourners, which means traveler, stranger, exile. All of them are, mean, can communicate the same idea that we are people on temporary stay, that we are strangers in a strange land. We are not in a permanent dwelling place. We are not going to be in this place forever. That we have been sent by God, but we will one day go back to God. So notice, and I think it's pretty important that Peter addresses his audience. He addresses the church. He says, hey, I'm an apostle. You are pilgrims. You are sojourners. You are strangers. You are exiles. Now, the Greek word behind this this English word is a word that we'll put up for you. I won't give you a test afterwards, don't worry. Parapedemos, which literally means a people who dwell alongside. Demos is is the Greek word for people or population, but para in Greek means to be alongside or to be next to or to be adjacent to. So do you see how he addresses us? He's really, he's just calling us people. We we translate this word pilgrim or stranger or exile, but the, the word is just people who dwell alongside. Yeah, you're a person like everybody else, but you're a different kind of person. You are a person who dwells alongside everyone else. That you're a person that dwells adjacent to, next to. But there's something distinct about you in that you are not going to be here forever. And the reality is that everybody's in this category, but not everybody realizes it and recognizes it. But you do, or you should. 
You are a stranger. You are dwelling alongside para everyone else. As in we are, where everyone else is dwelling, we are right over to the side. In the same place, but distinct in standing out in how we dwell there. Now, of course, how refers to our attitude, our posture, our mentality, our disposition towards the place that we have been but uh, ingrained in them was the message from the days of Samuel, the theme of Jesus, that we are strangers in a strange land, temporary stay, temporarily staying, destined for, and directed towards a kingdom to come. Now, this flies in the face of everything that this world tells us, to dig our heels in, to build as big as we can, to establish something that is unshakable. So with that in mind, with all that, with, with that as their base, as their foundation, as the starting point of how they viewed every day, every aspect of their life, Peter gives them, and he gives us some instructions as to how we should live our lives. Seeing that we are exiles, strangers, on temporary stay, anticipating checking out and moving out, Peter has an important word about how we manage our lives, knowing that we will re-return to God. Because here's what makes Christians... Followers of Jesus, different from the rest of the world. We're, we're not just strangers. We're not just exiles. Yes, we're strangers. Yes, we're just passing through. But we're not lost. We know where we're going. You know why the Bible refers to people that are outside of Christ as lost? Because they don't realize the direction for their life. They have no sense of direction. They don't realize they are from God and they're going back to God. You and I know that. We are accountable to that. We are not lost as in we know where we're from and we know where we're going. And we should live our lives as if we are well aware of that. Do you follow me there? We're strangers. Yeah, we're just passing through, but we are not lost. What this means is that we're very much equipped and empowered to navigate our way through this life in a way that honors God, in a way that best prepares us for what is next. Remember the promise that Jesus made when he was introducing this to his disciples in John 14. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I'm going and preparing a place. And he's not just talking about a little one-room apartment, right? He's talking about a kingdom, right? He's talking about a whole new reality. I'm preparing a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And, and, he, and, he, and he adds that, you know the way. And somebody had to pipe up, and Thomas had to pipe up and say, Oh, I don't know. I don't know the way. And Jesus said, You're looking at him. I am the way. I am the pathway that you are able to navigate this life through. He is the way. Not just looking at him, but living by him and living through him and living for him. Peter shares with us some insight about what this looks like, beginning in verse 13. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. That means to, to put your belt on as in so nothing, uh, everyone, everything is secure as you begin to move. In and, and the Old Testament, there's this idea that you never know when you're going to have to run away from your home because there could be an enemy attacking. This idea that you better live ready to be in haste at any point in time. You got to be ready. And, and that's why he told the people in, Israel, in Egypt, take the Passover with your shoes on, right? Because you got to be ready to go out the door any minute. 
Now, maybe you live like that, and maybe, you, maybe you're somebody that when it's time to leave, it's going to take an hour or so to get ready. I, I don't know where you're at. But, but we won't go there. But what does Peter say? Hey, live like the door could open at any minute. And you know how you should live. You know the way. So gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And I don't have to explain that, right? That means be aware of what is going on around you. But this, this, this is such an incredible, underrated commandment. Rest your hope fully upon the grace Underline this, that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Set your hope fully, not partially, not, at, not something you think about once a year or every once in a while, but set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought. Now, what is the, why is he emphasized will be brought? Obviously, the revelation of Jesus refers to his return. But here's what Peter wants us to understand. That Jesus' return is not a threat. It's a gift. That it isn't something we, oh, I don't want to think about that. That's, uh, uh, that makes me uncomfortable. That makes me kind of worry. No, his return is not a threat. The end of this age is not a threat. It's not something to, lo- to, to be gloomy about or to be worried about. It's a gift. Because here, and here's why it's a gift. His return is the full realization of God's grace to you. Yeah, God gives us grace to live each and every day, but the full realization of that grace will only be experienced at the end of this life. And here's why that matters. Because every single day, we are called to make a choice to live for God, to serve God, to honor God. And some days, that isn't easy. Some days, we choose to do otherwise or we're tempted to. But Peter's saying, we'll never understand the whole reason for it all unless we set our hope fully on that day because on that day we'll finally get the payoff as in why did we do it what was the purpose of all this the payoff will not ever come before that day Every single day, there are many decisions that we must make, but there will not be immediate, instant gratification. And there's a lot of different theologies that say there is, and I understand why the people want to make that up, because it makes us feel better right now. But Jesus is not, he is not returning, right, unless he's returning, right? So the gratification is not in every moment that we make that decision. We make those decisions preparing for his return, and that is the faith that we are called to live with. We choose to obey God. We choose to love others. We choose because of our hope in God, our hope in the grace that will be revealed one day. But there may be some tough decisions that we've got to make along the way because there may not be that instant reminder that, hey, this is worth it. Hey, there's a payoff tomorrow. And Peter refers to the, the, the temptation in verse 14. He says, you must be obedient, not conforming yourself to your former lusts or your former passions as in your ignorance. Now, passions there refers to things that we do instinctively. You know what instinct means? It means you do it without thinking about it. You do it without praying about it. You do it because it's just who you are, and of course you're going to do it because that's just what you do. Things that we do instinctively without considering the bigger picture. Now, this is going to be where we park for a little bit. It could be a reaction we give to someone, an outlook we have about someone, but we are no longer ignorant. We're no longer uninformed. We have a thought. We have a thorough 
and clear awareness about our placement and our purpose. Yet if we do not make a conscious choice and our instincts, our impulses will lead us to forgetting this and forgoing this. We, we brought up the children of Israel a lot with this subject because rightly so, we can learn a lot from their behavior, especially their bad behavior. And they fumbled the ball in this area more than any other area. When Israel was on the cusp of moving into the promised land, God made it clear that there would be a struggle between following his plans and their plans. Their dreams and their visions and his dreams and visions for them and his will for them. He explained that there would be their own emotional bias that would push them to pursue their long-awaited dreams and their long-awaited visions of building and prospering. He wasn't preventing them from chasing their dreams, but he wanted them to first and foremost seek his will. He warned them. This is so big. He warned them over and over again that if they failed to seek him and keep him first, their dreams could easily become a nightmare. That may sound harsh or blunt, but isn't it true? Haven't we all experienced this before? God brings us to something and we leave him at the door as if we don't need him anymore. As if we don't need the guidance because we've made it. See you later, God. In reality, we need his guidance to be able to truly enjoy and manage what he's given us. So what is God, so, so what is God specific and detailed word for his people? Well, you can read all about that in the book of Deuteronomy. And I would like for you to put a bookmark here in Peter, and I want you to turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to read a little bit of what God said to his people. Now, let me explain Deuteronomy, if you've never heard of it before, never read it before. Deuteronomy is essentially, and the word in Hebrew means a retelling of the law. It essentially is a repackaging of all that was revealed to Moses from Exodus, number, Leviticus, and Numbers. It's kind of like whenever you're starting a new, series, a new season of a series and there's that, there's that summary video at the beginning of the episode or the beginning of the season that explains to you in a very condensed fashion what you missed or what you, all, what you watched before. Deuteronomy is the clip show. It's the summary show of everything that they had went through and heard about. It summarized and retold what they originally were given through Moses as they were out Sinai and in the wilderness. You can almost compare the book of Deuteronomy, though, to a commencement speech given by uh, the principals or the president of a, of a university or a high school, um, or dignitaries, whoever speaks at a, at a commencement or a graduation ceremony. You can almost compare Deuteronomy to that kind of book. And here's why I think that's a really good analogy or why it really helps me understand it. Um, all the speakers at a graduation address the students in a very farewell-type fashion. Um, you probably don't remember it because, of course, why would you remember it, right? You were just there to graduate. You weren't there to listen to people. And that's the whole point of Deuteronomy and why I think this relates to it. When we're in our graduation, we're sitting there in the floor, and people get up, and they motivate us and reiterate the values the school imparted to us. In Deuteronomy, Moses goes through the law, he goes through all that they saw as a nation, he goes through the sacrificial system, and he issues these warnings about how they might would make the most of what they were about to go into. So it's like when your principal or your teacher or some other dignitary stood up in front of you at your graduation and they encourage you and they admonish you and they maybe warn you to not lose your work ethic or, lose, uh, you know, or waste the opportunity. And, and, and the reason why none of us remember those speeches Let's be honest, nobody remembers those speeches because we're sitting there on the floor, we're wrapped up like a curtain or a, or a shower curtain, right? We're sitting on the floor and all we're thinking about is get me out of here, right? 
I mean, this is two hours. For it. This could be five minutes. Give me my diploma and let me leave, right? And again, I, I, I had to give a speech, so I know what it's like to not be listened to. I know, hey, people just looking at you like, oh, man, come on, just go, get over with this. Just let's move on. But we don't remember our, those speeches because we're sitting there thinking, I want my diploma and I want my freedom. We don't hear a word of what's being said because all of that is a roadblock to finally getting what we waited for. So this is the nation of Israel as they listen to Moses lecture them for days preceding their land takeover. Yeah, 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 Moses, just let us in. We know what we are gonna do. We know what to do. Let us start living. Let us start realizing our dreams. But Moses knew and God knew that if they didn't hear the warning, if they didn't heed the warning, they would not be prepared to possess the land and glorify God in it. And beyond that, the promised land was a preview of a much better land. But they didn't want to hear that. All they ever wanted was the land and the home, and that's what they had their minds on. It's important to compartmentalize our dreams and desires. This is so important. Because they thought, all we want is in that land. And Moses says, no, no, no. You don't really want what's in the land. You want something bigger than that. You want something deeper than that. You think everything you've ever wanted is right in front of you. But this is meant to point you to the God who is better and the God who you desire more. You see, it's so important that we understand this. And this is not human nature. This is not normal. I know I'm a preacher. I'm telling you something that sounds so out there, but this is so true. Our dreams and our desires are actually longings for more than we could ever obtain in this life. You may say, Justin, you're crazy. You don't realize just how much I need this. And when I get it, man, everything will be better. Listen, I, I promise you this. This is God's word, not me. Our dreams and desires are longings for more than you can ever obtain in this life. Your heart is crying for much more. And God has made a way for us to receive what we long for, but part of obtaining that involves passing through a life meant to prepare us for and make us anticipate what he has in store. All that God gives us is meant to be reminders that he has much more in store beyond this life. And it's how we manage this life that prepares us for what's next. And in a lot of ways, qualifies us for what's next. In the event that he withholds something from us, it's because he has something better that can't compare. If he gives us what we think we need, we need to remember that he still has much more. But in many ways, our lives are tests to see how badly we want what God actually has for us in the future. For the nation of Israel, they struggled seeing past what was right in front of them, and they wrongly assumed it was for them and that it was the end-all, be-all. Look at Deuteronomy 6. Listen to what Moses tells them. We're going to read from chapter 6. We're going to skip over to chapter 12. But chapter 6, verse 10 through 12, listen to this little snippet. So it shall be. When the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he has swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large, beautiful cities which you did not build. Don't you see that little, that little nugget? You don't own it. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. It's being loaned to you. Keep that in mind. Houses full of good things which you did not fill. Hewn out wells which you did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. You, you see the drift? You see the theme there? It's not ours. It's not ours. It's God's. He's given it to us. And what we do with it is so crucial. 
Verse 12, beware. Everybody say that with me. Beware. You know what beware means? It, it means to sit up straight, right? It means to listen close. Not to me, but to God. Beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Why would they ever forget? Because that's what people do, right? You know what makes you a person? What makes me a person? That I forget stuff. Tell that to your spouse next time they say, why'd you forget? Well, that makes me a person. The preacher said so. So, we must remember the Lord. And that sounds like a, such a juvenile elementary commandment, but isn't it so important? Because we always forget. Remember the Lord. Remain surrendered to his will. Reject the world and reject its traps which appeal to our passions and distract us from the true payoff. A piece of advice is repeated throughout Deuteronomy is over in chapter 12. Flip over there with me. We're, gonna, we're just gonna drop in. This is a chapter about the importance of worship, the importance of letting God guide every element of your life, beginning with worship. Listen to Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 12, verse five, and you can find this same verse worded a little bit differently all throughout this book. So that tells me that's pretty important. But just dropping in. You shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place and there you shall go. Notice the emphasis there. It's his dwelling place. It's his land. It's his will. Seek his place for you. Again, this specifically refers to where they would worship, but it is stretched out to refer to what we do with every element of our lives. Every single day, we must seek God's direction for our life, as in he can guide our every step. And come on, come on. If we are strangers in a strange land, if Jesus is the only pathway to lead us through, who do we think we are not consulting him with our every move? Come on. If we are in a strange place for a short time and there's only one way through it, who in the world do we think we are not asking him for every bit of advice he can give? Right? Who do, well, I don't, I mean, I don't do it to insult God. I just do it because I don't think I need God. Right? Let's be, you know, let me verbalize our thoughts for us, right? Well, I mean, I, you know, I show up, I, I put some money and I do this and, and, you know, I don't think God needs to be involved in every element of my life, does he? God has a choice for us in every area. He has a plan for our relationships, to family life, professional lives, a pathway for us to follow in our morals, our money, our time, on or off the clock. It's about pursuing it and wanting it and reaching for it and waiting on it. Turn over, last thing in Deuteronomy, turn over to chapter 26, and then we'll go back to Peter and we'll close. In chapter 26, God is leading the people in worship specifically how they present themselves to him and how they bring offerings and how they really sacrifice their lives before God. But part of this chapter is a confession that God taught the people to rehearse and recite throughout their lives. And I want you to notice kind of where it starts from. Verse five. You shall answer or you shall confess and say before the Lord your God. My father was a Syrian. He's referring to Jacob. Jacob was, lived in the land of Syria for 20 years. So he became kind of under that identity. 
My father was a Syrian about to perish. He went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. So the idea there is our father, Jacob, was a wanderer. He was a stranger in several strange lands, first in Syria, then in Egypt. The Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord our God, of our fathers and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our afflictions and our labor and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with great terror and signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, verse 10, this is so big. Now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord and worship before the Lord your God. So what is the, what is the message here? Remember you're a stranger and rely on God's plan and pathway and bring all that you have and all that you are and lay it in front of him. You know why God told him to bring the first fruits, as in off the top of not just money, but everything they had, they brought a tithe to God. You know why? Because it was taking a part of them and cutting it off and laying it in front of God, saying it belongs to him, all of it belongs to God. Not just 10%, all of it does. But when you lay it out in front of you and God, it's visible for you to see a part of me is right there. I'm giving it to him because I need his guidance. Back to Peter and we'll be done in a minute. It's along these lines and calling back to these points that Peter is leading the early church. When he says to set our hope on the future grace of God, he's saying to you, bring your life, set it before the Lord in confidence that it's all better off in his hands. Verse 15 and 16. He who called you is holy. You also be holy in your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am, that's God talking, I am holy. Holiness means we are set apart to God. And this is an important distinction. We may dwell alongside the world as strangers, but we are set apart in the world as Christians. That goes back to that idea. We're not lost. We know what we're doing. We know who we're following. We know where we're going. We are set apart to God. And you know, not only are we tempted by passions, but we're under a lot of pressure. You're under a lot of pressure. I know that. I feel it in my own life. There's environments and voices around me that we must measure up to, that we feel like we have a certain standard we must achieve socially, economically, internal pressure, external pressure. We all deal with it. Peter offers us a way of escape from that grip. He says, you've been released from the worldly mentalities. You've been set apart to God. And I, this is so important. God has called you to be and enabled you to be holy unto him. That is what will make you whole. Do you see that? That alone. You will not experience wholeness any other way. That's what God's trying to tell Israel. That's what they thought they hit the jackpot, but he says you'll never be whole or complete because of those things. It's only when you use your gift and use your possessions and seek the Lord and serve him that you find fulfillment. That pursuit may see us gain more or lose it all, but what matters is that we draw closer to him. And let's read verse 17 through 19 again. If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to everyone's work, 
conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you're not redeemed with corruptible things, silver or gold and the traditions of your fathers, verse 19, but you are redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or spot. We have got to wire our consciousness to God's future judgment, not this world's expectations or observations. And that's really hard for a lot of us because again, we have a lot of pressure on us, a lot of socially, economically, relation. We've got a lot of people saying, well, this is what I think, this is what you should do. We've got to wire our conscience to God's future judgment. We aren't going to be judged for anybody else but our own. We're not going to be judged by anybody else's standard. We are going to be judged by how we spend our exile how we were set apart for him and what we set before him. He encourages us in the next few verses. We've been saved by Jesus. He's made a way. He makes a way for us to be acceptable to God. We've all fell short and we all will fall short, but he is enough to raise us back up every time. I want to I want you to I want to close with an emphasis on that last part of verse 17. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay or of your exile in fear. Not just being reverent to God, but there's an awareness of what he's given us and why he's given us. And we are conscious that we are very prone to waste it. This is what I call a healthy fear. This is our one shot to prepare for something so much better. Do you really want to fumble the ball when so much is on the line? Again, who's your judge? Who, who's holding you accountable? Not this world, not your own internal pressure, the external. Who are we living for? Who gave it to us? Who built it? Who dug it? Who provided it? Why did he give it to us? Conduct yourself with fear. I don't want to waste this one shot that I've been given. I think this is what the psalmist meant, and Moses wrote it. Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Peter says that we have been saved from futility, from waste. We've been saved from futility. We've been set apart for an endless future. The question is, are we seeking God's will for our lives? Are we setting our lives before him? Are we making a decision with him in mind, with confidence and with an awareness of his return? God has given us more than enough reasons to trust him and Jesus has provided us more than enough grace. We must make a decision to remember and remain. Remember the Lord remains surrendered. We are set apart. We must set everything before him. Peter says, pass your time in fear. You are holy unto God, so set your life apart to God. So if there's an area of your life that you haven't done that with, or maybe it's just your entire life, the whole point of this series that we've been in is about reminding us what we are so prone to forget. It's all borrowed. It all belongs to him. Our time here is short. How are we living with that in mind? 
Jesus said, come unto me. I've made a way for you. I am the way. Bring it before him. Lay it down and follow his will. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder. Thank you for Peter. Thank you for Moses for giving us these preserved guidebooks, guidelines. Thank you, God, that you have not left us in the dark. That yes, we are strangers, but we are not lost. Or we don't have to be lost. Maybe there's somebody today that would just confess that they've never understood why, it was you, why that word was used. Maybe they would like to confess that they are lost. That they don't know what they're doing and they aren't following any set of directions and they're just kind of wandering around and they show up at church every once in a while, but they're not on a path. They're not following Jesus and they need to be found and they need direction. God, if that's the, if that's the confession of one of, your, one of the people today, Lord, would you show them that they can be found, they can be saved, and they can be set on the straight and narrow path of Jesus? They can be forgiven and redeemed and saved and brought to this glorious purpose. Lord, maybe there's some Christians here today that would confess they've been living as if they don't know where they're going. They've been living as if they are lost, just wandering from place to place. Today, they want to seek your face and they want to seek your will and they want to make a decision. They're going to follow the way because they don't want to waste this life. Lord, we are set apart to you. We bring everything before you. Would you move in the house to bring everyone before you today in Jesus' name? Amen.